Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, I'm not normally one for poring over management and leadership books, but I found an exception. It's called World Class How to Lead, Learn and Grow Like a Champion. And I've been lucky enough to speak to the authors, Will Greenwood and Ben Fennell. Now, they are both titans of their respective worlds, sport and business. Will needs little introduction, the England Rugby World Cup winner, writer, speaker and all-round good bloke. Ben, meanwhile has thus far had a dazzling career in advertising and was the ex-CEO of BBH. More recently, he founded The Growth House, a consultancy that helps leaders and businesses grow. They are a dynamic duo and were a pleasure to talk to. Uh, We discuss why they wrote the book in the first place. We cover the dynamics of leadership versus teamship, how to build and motivate high-performing teams, both in sport and in business, and how to give good feedback In fact, it takes Will about two minutes to give me feedback on my questioning. Finally, why it's important to adopt a growth mindset. They've written an excellent book with access to some industry heavyweights. I enjoyed it because it's practical rather than theoretical. And to my mind, you should buy it for a boss who needs it or a teammate who can learn from it or indeed yourself who can grow from it. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Will Greenwood and Ben Fennell, welcome to the podcast. Now let's start with your backgrounds. Where did you grow up? How did you meet? And how did you start your careers? I'll do one minute if I can on that. Uh, Will Greenwood, born in Blackburn to two school teachers. So feedback was a central tenet of my growing up, whether it be buying four bananas and three pints of milk and working out how much change from two quid or working out how to save my energy doing 10 one minute on, one minute off over a 22 metre stretch in an ambulacrum in Stonia's College, Durham University, economics graduate, HSBC, rugby turned professional overnight in 1996 with Jonah Lomu taking the World Cup by storm in 1995. Gave it a go. Two years later, I decided it was a good idea. I'd given it a go. Won a World Cup, retired, worked for myself for 15 years, worked for Sky, Daily Telegraph, and set about writing a book 18 months ago with the legend who's now about to introduce himself, who is Ben Fennell. God, you've done that before. Wow, that's exhausting. I think we can leave it there, can't we? That was the Wine Best podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, exactly. That was really good. I thought I'd get to say more, but no, that was great, Greg. So my parents are both actors, strangely. So um, I grew up with um, theatrical people and actually advertising, which is what I ended up doing for the first part of my career, was what ended up paying my school fees. So um, my parents... A very different type of actors. My dad was in Crossroads. No, he wasn't Benny. My mum was RSC. I went to St. Edward's School in Oxford. Then I went to Durham and met Will and a load of other fabulous people. I read politics. Uh, And then I went to Oxford for a year to do a not terribly serious degree, but play lots of rugby and got my blue, which was great. And then joined BBH, the advertising agency BBH, as a grad trainee. And was their man and boy, really. They gave me the CEO ship of our Asia business in 02. And I was in Asia 02 to 06. And then I came back to the UK in 06 and then stayed at BBH all the way through from 06 to 2018 as CEO, which was fabulous, working with lots of amazing leaders and businesses. And then at the end of 18 and start of 19, I set up the Growth House, which is a company that helps build high performance teams. And then we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, at the start of lockdown, Will and I collaborated on writing this book. 
And we'll come back to the book in a minute. But so how close, Ben, were you to pursuing a career in professional rugby and joining your friend Will? What's interesting about England teams at a junior level, and I, I got the privilege of playing at sort of under 19 level, is I always think there are three types of players. There are players like Will and Lawrence and Martin Johnson, who everybody knows are going to go the whole way. Then there are some people who you're not quite sure who might be talented enough. And then there are some people like me for whom they are absolutely at the pinnacle of their rugby career and they've done well to get there. And so it was a very clear-cut decision for me that I wasn't going to go all the way. And so I was able to still play lots of rugby at Roslyn Park and the like, but I was able to dive into my career. And what was so lovely was the likes of Will and Lawrence and, and some of his teammates were very generous about keeping people like me close and allowing us to enjoy some of the journey that they went on. Well, let's introduce the book, World Class, How to Lead, Learn and Grow Like a Champion. Can I just say, Douglas, you were remarkably tepid when you went, let's introduce the book. And Do you want me to go harder? I want you to be a little bit more enthusiastic about it. <laughs> You know, contrast in word and feeling. This was, oh, you need a bit more oomph, some heart. It was good, delivered badly. God, this is the feedback. In chapter three, I think you talk about feedback. Two, chapter two is feedback. Read the book, you'd know. You need to, I did read the book, but I yeah, got the chapters wrong. Yeah. In the beginning, you talk about immediate feedback, and that, I suppose, is what I've got. You're getting some. Okay, so let's introduce the book. World class, how to lead, learn and grow like a champion. Why did you think it was a good time to write a book on leadership? So I've been writing for the Daily Telegraph for 16 years, of which there's a, there's a very brief story of how I ended up writing my own and, and still write all these years later. Most rugby players, in fact, 99.9% .9 of rugby players, whilst they're playing, have a ghosted article. And I would meet after the game in the West Stand, in the gym, and there would be the Times, the Telegraph, and I would uh, I was the news of the world. And I would meet the news of the world journalist, and I would do a 15-minute interview on the Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock, and I'd open the paper on the Sunday morning and go, I did not say one word. That has no relevance to the interview I had. So I'd ring our great friend and agent, Nick Keller, every Monday and go, Nick, they've misquoted me again. He goes, right, I'm fed up. We've had this conversation 23 times a year. It's paying for your mortgage. You've got two options. Either keep allowing it to pay for your mortgage and its chip paper the following week and stop worrying about it. Or two, let's rip it up and I'll go and find your paper and you can write your own. And I said, no one writes their own. He goes, do you know what? Why don't you be the first one or one of the first to write their own? So we went for option B, aligned myself with a chap called Keith Perry at the Daily Telegraph, the sports editor. He gave me a chance and it was a bit like Pat and John went to the seaside in my early journalist attempts. They slowly improved if you are a... Jack of rough crafts, you are a master of drafts or something like that along the way. And finally stumbled across a method that seemed to work for me. And then 16 years later, lockdown occurred, no rugby. I was, had always been fascinated by growth mindset books, leadership books, continually trying to strive and find a way to improve myself in the pursuit of better and thought, Time to put up or shut up. So started writing a piece and thought, I'm very light on business here. And also, I'm very light on someone else having a look at it and saying, what do you think? So immediately jumped into my head, rang Ben after about 400 words of my first piece. I said, would you mind collaborating? Would you like to collaborate? We did a piece. The Telegraph said, this is great. Why don't you do another one? 
By the time we'd finished that first section, we'd done four pieces. And in reality, to get to four, we'd written eight, self-edited, cut it down, chosen the best ones. Benny, who gets up at three o'clock every morning, decided we've done eight. Why don't we do 15 or 20 and write a book? That's where it started. And it then took about six, seven, eight months to accumulate our content. And then it took a further eight, nine months to go around the world, not literally, but via Zoom to interview 50 titans from the world of business and sport to see if they contradict, agree, disagree, and weave those opinions into our book to make it a book that we would like to be used as one that is used for continual self-improvement, continual referral, put down, pick up, go back when having a problem with pressure or teamship or generosity or feedback indeed, and find a way to own that particular chapter that is taking place in your life at the time. And how did you come across the structure? There's a clear structure to it, the celebrating difference, togetherness and growth. How did you happen upon that? Was that set out from the outset or did that come later? I think we had a hypothesis at the beginning that we both kind of believed in, which was that there is a kind of formula or there is an equation almost to the way the most high-performing teams and businesses do what they do. And it was our belief that they were doing two things very effectively. They were embracing difference. They were packing their teams with difference of all forms, um, but they weren't stopping there. They were then forging togetherness. And it, it seemed to us that if they were able to do those two things in sport and in business, they would accelerate growth. So we went in with that hypothesis, and I think a scientist or a mathematician will tell you this, the data then either proves or disproves your hypothesis. And what we found is everywhere we turned, everyone we interviewed, every elite culture that we looked at, they didn't always use exactly those words, but they were always managing those two drivers, managing and creating kind of diversity, but also creating and forging togetherness. Mm-hmm. It struck me when I was reading it, and you mentioned it was uh, it was a book on leadership, and you would probably find it in the business management section of Waterstones and the leadership section. But really, it was about building teams. It was about teamship yeah. more than leadership. And I wonder if you can comment on the distinction between those two things, or maybe they're one and the same. Benny will answer that one better than I will, but I just think you've stumbled across something that is at the heart of both our lives, which is teamship and togetherness. We both strive, and I strive certainly, to have some sort of physical health and exercise on at least five of six days of each week. I try and work on my mental health as as regularly as possible by occasionally forcing myself to slow down in order to speed up, which was always one of my uh, struggles as a a 20-year-old and 30-year-old. And then the other thing is, is being part of a collective, being part of a team, work, play, friends, family, your closest, nearest and dearest, and to to enjoy and to celebrate that. And I think on on the front of our book, Alan Joke, the CEO of Unilever, the quote he's given us, these lessons are absolute gold for anyone who believes in the joy of winning together. And winning together is everything I've ever dreamed and wanted to do as a kid and now adult. Yeah, and I'm really glad you've asked that question because I think there are tons of books on leadership And one of my observations, part of why I've set up the business that I have, is that many careers, once you're a few years in, 
the executive obsesses about his or her leadership skills, but actually they often neglect what it looks like to be a good teammate. And so a lot of the work that we do at the Growth House actually is with people who are very accomplished leaders, but they're actually often in quite dysfunctional teams. Can you give an example of how our team's dysfunctional? Oh, God, there's a, many different ways. They don't know how to challenge each other positively. They either tiptoe around disagreements or they do it without context. They attack the person, not the issue. They're siloed. They can be slow. They can lack rigor. I mean, how many different ways do you want? I love that. If you're on family fortunes, (laughs) you know you have to get the top five. I think you've hit the bonus with Vernon K. You've hit the top five (laughs) ways a team can be dysfunctional just off the cuff. I do think knowing how to disagree, I, I do think number one, if we follow the family fortunes one, I think the ability for a team to disagree without being disagreeable, to go hard at the issue, soft on the person, you know, some of the ideas we talk about. I think at the Growth House, we spend more time on feedback and challenge than on any other topic. And I, and I think, hopefully, I'm pleased that it feels to you that teamship comes out very strongly from the book because that was the ambition. And just one thing to pick up there. People will say, well, you and Ben are so similar. I mean, sure, how have you got a real perspective on this topic? And actually, we are extraordinarily different in one major major way in that ben has always wanted ben i I hope i'm speaking please interrupt ben if i'm right Ben has always been a ceo he was the captain of the first 15 at durham university he was the first one in our group to be a ceo and did it magnificently driving hundreds of millions of pounds of revenue over 16 years at bbh and i've always been much happier in a tracksuit i don't mean in a tracksuit necessarily literally in a tracksuit but i mean as a sort of number two as a as a doer haven't been a magnificent strategist, haven't been great at 36,000 feet, but I'm a bloody good person to have on your team. Ferociously loyal and single-minded and, and desperate to fulfil tactics that may be handed down to me from a from a different level of the hierarchy. And I think the reality is we often spend our lives thinking, you're supposed to be the CEO, you've got to be the number one. Actually, I'm a big believer going, it's okay in life just to be a great teammate. It's okay not to necessarily have that ambition or not to be a black belt at the CEO thing. And that element of difference within a team is critical. And where do you think it comes from? I mean, where does this this sort of celebration of difference and, and celebration of diversity of thought come from? I mean, are we teaching it well in schools, for example? Is it coming out of universities when people can't join the workforce? Are we celebrating diversity of thought? And maybe you can answer this by asking like what does your ideal reader look like and uh, who would find the book useful we could easily do a whole podcast on diversity you know it's a massive topic i I read a wonderful quote the other day that said um, talent is distributed equally across society but unfortunately opportunity is not and i think that's a really powerful thought that opportunity is still unequal which is why the bulk of the um, of the diversity debate is still where it needs to be. You know, it's around still diversity of gender, gender pay gap, diversity of ethnicity. Neither Will or I really are out and out experts in that space. I think we say that in the uh, in the prologue. So where we focused our energy really is on cognitive difference, cognitive diversity, diversity of leadership archetype, 
And for the purposes of the book, that's the thing we've explored most. And again, when you speak to the leaders, either in sports or in business, all of the people we spoke to went out of their way when composing and selecting their team to pack it with cognitive difference. It's almost as if that's task number one. Before we begin our mission, our plan, we've got to start by making sure we've got the right balance of strategists and executors, of people who are cup half full and people who are cup half empty, people who can look at the world from 30,000 feet and people who are right in on the detail. And if you can't see that kind of difference in your team, if it feels too homogenous or there's too many people looking at the issue the same way, you need to load it with more difference. And I just think one of the great quotes we've got, and we're really proud of some of the quotes we picked up, and I'm just making sure I get the right group of three that Jeff Dodds, when he did this did interviews for us. He was COO of Virgin Media. He's now CEO of the Combined Group, the VMO2 Group. And when I evaluate talent, I use a simple triangle, strategic thinking, networking, and operational delivery. Everyone in the team tends to score differently against those three criteria, and there will be an overall team score. But you want a team with very high scores across the different criteria. And they'll look at his team's and he'll select his teams to make sure his team has that perspective on every problem that comes up. Otherwise, you only have one view of the mountain, and you have to have these different lenses on it to allow you to snap the whole picture into focus. You had access to some pretty impressive individuals, you know, Caroline McCall from ITV, Dave Lewis from Tesco's Alan Joke, you mentioned from Unilever. I wonder, um, moving on to the sort of middle part of your book, I'm not going to do it by chapters just in case you catch me out again, but the middle part of your book, the togetherness part of your book, what were the sort of common themes of building a cohesive culture that you drew out of your interviews with these chief execs and indeed leaders in sport? I think people can get a bit confused with the language in this space. So people can talk about the plan the purpose, the code of conduct, and people can get use them interchangeably. And I like to make it really, really simple. So I think the first question a team should ask itself and the first piece of work a team should do to build togetherness is about purpose. And that should be answering the question, why? Why are we here? What are we trying to do together? What's the reason for our endeavor? So why, I think, is the first question to ask, to try to articulate some kind of purpose. Then equally sequential for me is what? What is it that we're trying to do? Um, If we've answered why first, then answering what? What is the plan? What does it look like? What does success look like? And then finally, how? How are we going to carry ourselves? How are we going to behave? How are we going to get things done? So why, then what, then how, I think is a really important and simple little three beats for beginning the process of building togetherness. Can you apply the same thing when looking at teams in the sporting world? I was waiting for a longer question, but was, <laughs> the brevity of your question was quite brilliant. It was sort of Pax Monesque, away you go, discuss. Um, let me go back to the 1st of September, 1997, when a very young, not quite a full head of hair, Clive Woodward, it was starting to thin even in 1997, stood up at the Danesfield House Hotel just outside Henley, and he selected his very first squad. And he had a range of players from 80 caps down to 
about eight of us who had zero. You really wanted to blend those who knew all of the rules and those who knew none of the rules. It was really exciting. We did pace, pace, pace. And there were no PowerPoints in those days. It was sort of not on papyrus, but it was on the <laughs> good old-fashioned flip chart. Pulled it back, win the World Cup. There it is. That's why we're here. We're going to do something that no Northern Hemisphere team has ever done, and we are going to be pioneers in this part of the world. Wow, you could sense the excitement across the room. What is it we're going to do? We're going to search for marginal gains, and he used to call them do 100 things 1% better. He listed a whole list of sort of strategies that we would try and get to over the course of that. But he acknowledged that over the course of the first two or three years, we were going to fail miserably. We we're going to acknowledge that failure. We're going to keep getting up until we eventually get there. And we, we did fail quite spectacularly in his first effort at a World Cup two years later. So I think Benny's three beat that he puts is, is relevant from business and to sport. You, when you're doing something in a sports field, there's an element of Everest has already been done. I get it. But in your own sport, in your own challenge, with your own collective, what is it? that you want to be remembered for? What is your legacy? What are you trying to achieve that hasn't been done before? Why will you be special? And if you can create that sense of purpose, then you can take a group of players who were beaten 76-0 by Australia in 1998, five years later, to head back to their own backyard with 75% of the same playing group and turn them over in their own stadium because of that sense of belonging and that sense of purpose. Let's hold on that sense of purpose. Where do you think, and going back to our thoughts on teamship versus leadership, where does that sense of purpose come from? Is it coming from Clive Woodward, full head of hair, and his vision? Or does it come from, is it a bottom-up feeling from the players who are inspired to go out and do their best? It's exactly the right question. And I think the answer is you have to find an idea or a goal that connects the individual with the team. So I think it has to be bottom up and top down. You have to find a way of connecting something that the individual cares deeply about with something that the team cares deeply about. And in business, we see this all the time. An organization that has found a way of connecting an individual's values and beliefs with the values of the business will create absolutely fierce resolve. If you can get past a contractual transactional relationship with your employer, I do my work and it pays for my weekends. I don't really share their values. I don't really care about what they're trying to do versus what is happening much more now. You know, you speak to someone entering the workforce, they want to know the values of their company. They want to know their sustainability positions they want to share values with the organization they're joining. And if you can connect those two things, if you can connect me and we, you can build extraordinary resolve. And the fascinating thing, when that flip chart went back, you could sense the group divided into three almost immediately. Five or six of these older guards, like Leonard and Johnson and Bat, going, finally, someone believes in us because we've always believed in ourselves and there's been doom-mongers and naysayers for too long. Then at the other side of the room, I'm not going to say the back of the room because they're dispersed. There were those going, he's a complete lunatic. We can't even beat Scotland. How the bloody hell are we going to beat New Zealand? And then in the middle, there were those groups who were like, oh, I don't know which way to go. <laughs> Where do I swing? And Clive said his biggest problem was keeping those people in the middle away 
from those who are trying to get to them and whisper and doom mong and worm tongue and energy sap away from those and allow them to cling on to the coattails in a sort of Haley's Comet fashion behind those giants like Johnson and Delalio who were just waiting for someone to reset the agenda, to reset the parameters both physically and mentally, and for someone who was prepared to go to war with the powers that be to fight and scrap to provide the environment that would allow these players to be the very best selves as opposed to accepting mediocrity for so long because the powers that be felt it was good enough just to play for England. Woodward was never interested in either as a player or as a coach in just accumulating caps. Well, those three groups sound familiar in business, you know, when an extraordinary amount of change is happening. I just want to touch on, on how leadership has changed and you know, what we demand from our leaders, be it managers, team leaders, or indeed chief executives. And I think there's a quote from the book that a modern day leader shares vulnerabilities. Are we looking to see vulnerability from leaders? Yeah, I, I think even in my, you know, in the grand scheme of business leadership. So I was a CEO in the end for 16 years. And I know I went on a journey. And I don't think that was just to do with maturity. I think the role model and the environment and the debate about leadership evolved. I think I definitely started off believing the only way to lead was to pump out confidence and self-belief, let everybody feel I had it all covered. I was supremely confident about what we were doing. There was very little doubt. I was never going to lower my guard and show any sense of weakness. You know, no one likes seeing a worried pilot. And there are elements of that that, of course, hold true. You know, we feed off confidence as human beings. But I definitely learned the older I got and the more comfortable I got in my CEO position that actually that makes your direct reports often feel a bit inadequate because they were feeling stress and pressure and they weren't always certain. And if they felt their boss had no empathy at all about what anxiety felt like or doubt, you actually didn't connect as well. So I got much more comfortable the older I got showing a bit of vulnerability, showing a bit of uncertainty, leaning on my team. We talk a lot about the teamship contract that, you know, you give to the team, but occasionally also you need to lean and you need to borrow from the team. And I think that's true of leaders as well as peers. I think you get to lean on your your direct reports sometimes. So I definitely went on a personal journey, but I also felt the whole narrative around the superhuman boss was changing and lowering your guard, bringing people closer, showing some vulnerability, being authentic and human and flawed uh, was a much more relevant, empathetic and sort of powerful archetype. And it allows you to win the hearts of your team. And, you know, I'm going to use that word heart again. And one of the great quotes we came across, a wonderful guy, uh, who's actually a half-decent breakdancer. Every time he wins the Super Rugby with the Crusaders, Scott Razor Robertson does this most extraordinary breakdancing routine because he's a surfer. And he goes, Greens, get the heart, get the player. And it's a really simple philosophy. I'd grown up, I'm brought up in the north of England. I'm not going to say we're all hardy up there and children should be seen and not heard. But it was a very different style of being brought up in those days. And now showing that vulnerability and just giving a little bit of yourself, I think, is a much greater way 
there are times, of course, when you just need to be led and there needs to be no discussion about where you are going. But in the vast majority of instances within a workplace, you want to feel recognised and acknowledged. And if all you're ever doing is being spoken to, it can become draining after a while. And I think those that those leaders that are great listeners and are happy to give of the floor and happy to be questioned and have their hand bitten, I think can take people with exactly the same amount of talent much further than those who just simply dictate. I want to move on to the, the sort of final part of your book, which covers growth. Now, a key part of that is speed. And I think you have some interesting thoughts on, on how you manage speed. And to be competitive, you need to be incrementally faster than your competition. You know, Mark Zuckerberg tells us we need to move fast and break things. Now, the question is, you know, how can you be an effective leader of a team that is going quickly, moving fast and breaking things? Yeah, I mean, the business world has gone nuts in the last few years for agile, hasn't it? I mean, everyone, lots of the consultants are selling agile working. And and a lot of the principles of agile are, are from the battlefield, actually, in, in many ways, because they learned in the military some time ago that a pyramidic top-down structure where teams in the field or units in the field were not empowered was slower and you needed to push accountability into smaller units for them to be able to operate more quickly. Now, to do that, you have to have a framework and an understanding of what the mission was, of how you were going about it. And I think that's absolutely true of business. The old hierarchical, top-down, command and control style of leadership feels very outdated and very slow. And the leaders who I respect the most, the businesses that I respect most, had leadership that was crystal clear about the purpose, crystal clear about the mission and and the behaviours, but then they empowered their people. They pushed responsibility and accountability down into the business. And of course, those words should never be separated. Empowerment and accountability always have to go together. If you're empowered, you have to be accountable. And the great businesses find ways of doing that. We understand the structure and the framework but we're able to operate at speed accountably within it. To add what I add here, I mean, I think one of the things I live by is, is sort of getting set early. So you're not actually traveling in any direction. You're getting set for speed. Don't mistake a, a fast start for a good start in any way, shape or form. And so constantly understanding by bringing in Dave Lewis here from Tesco, and I'll then bring in the quote and then go back to hopefully articulate what I'm trying to say. He goes, Everyone talks about trusting your instincts, but if you trust your instincts, but you're not in control of your basic, you're simply gambling. So for me, fast start, for me, speed is about doing your basics unbelievably well and understanding your role within the team. And with that empowerment that's taking place much higher in senior leadership, you're then given the opportunity to get the best out of yourself, to be the best version of yourself on any given day. So your preparation, the hardest, sometimes the point that 12 and 13-year-olds get a little bit flummoxed by in the book. They love some of the quotes. They love some of the ideas. And then I bring them back to, yeah, but you've got to nail down your basics. And that's when 12 and 13-year-olds go, oh, I thought there was a magic wand. There really is no magic wand. If you want to be part of a great team that moves quickly uh, and trusts in your part of the machine and the cog to turn the machine much faster than it had been before, then in order to pivot, 
you've got to have the relentless consistency about what you deliver to the team. And then that gives you the flexibility to change and move quickly. Two other little ideas on speed that I love. One is often increasing speed is about what you take away rather than what you add. Remove process, remove people, remove governance. Uh, Often we try and speed things up and add where actually the opposite is true. And then the other thing is we talk a lot about different types of diversity and difference. We don't often talk about youth and experience as a type of diversity. And actually, one of the things that I found again and again at BBH was often it was the more experienced craftsmen and women, the people who really knew their trade, would often be the quickest to solve problems. We interviewed one of the great creative directors, a guy called Ewan Patterson, and he said, I'm not sure I got better the longer my career went on, but I definitely got faster. And I think it's sometimes overlooked. It's an important diagnostic for a team to keep an eye on. How many young guns have you got and how many old masters have you got? I want to now turn to the future. This is your first book together. And I wonder if this is going to be the first of many books together and maybe as we you know, stare down the barrel of the 21st century and thinking about other routes to market and other ways of getting your ideas out, I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts on how you can reach your said end market. Look, I mean, I think one of the things that, that keeps coming up today is, are we dealing occasionally in oxymorons? Are we dealing in slowing down to speed up? Are we talking about the blend of youth and experience? And I, and I think one of those key words that keeps popping up is and. And I think that there might be an opportunity to explore some topics where you, you, you put things that seem diametrically opposed. And yet we're trying to remove the, the word binary from the English language in one go. I'm not trying to do that in any way, shape or form. But to understand, it tends to be a mix of things that creates greatness. It tends to be a combination of skill sets. And if I go back very quickly to my rugby team and my partnership, I was in the midfield with a guy called Mike Tyndall, uh, very different. He's a Yorkshireman, I'm a Lancastrian. You, you can't get much more different than that. But the difference didn't stop there. He was quick, I was slow, he was strong, I was weedy, I could pass, he couldn't, he could tackle, I couldn't. And, and yet we came together uh, to create this wonderful partnership. So the celebration of teamship for me seems to be much more about this combination of skill sets. And potentially, if you're asking, is, is there another book? then that might be an arena that we, we, we might explore. The other point you made, though, was different channels and platforms to get your message across. And we want to get it in front of as many eyeballs and into as many pairs of hands as possible. And so, you know, we're in the very early stages of looking at what a documentary concept might look like, at what a workshop product might look like. Will obviously does a lot of speaking. You know, I do a lot of workshops. We want to get this message out there. We we feel passionately that the messages and the tools in this book will hopefully create more enlightened, inspirational and kind of kinder leaders and higher performing, more functional, more generous teams. And if we can be part of that, that would be a a very fulfilling purpose. And then final question. That was like Columbo. Just just one more question. It's like, I knew Doug, there was a tricky one coming from Douglas. <laughs> one final question. I, I can almost feel your palms sweating. Yeah. What advice would you give to our younger listeners who are just starting out in their careers 
And, you know, maybe they are thinking about a career in financial services. Maybe they're thinking about a career in advertising. Maybe they're thinking about a career in sport. What advice would you give to them? And what skills do they need to equip themselves to be successful in your view? Wow. I mean, great. I mean, that's just a monstrously brilliant question. Look, I think over the course of years, you you define the, the very question that you frame your life around. And I think the Olympic gold medal hockey players, Helen and Kate Richard Walsh, I think have a phrase, would a gold medalist do that? I think the rowers talked about, will it make the boat go faster? So if you can sort of sum up your journey and existence in a sentence, it makes life very, very easy to sort of follow through on. I don't think I've come up with a question, but I've sort of come up with a phrase that I try to stick by. And I think as a you, you have to find your own in reality is your, to your question, Doug. You have to find your own raison d'etre, modus operandi, purpose. But mine is if you only tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And for someone whose brain got the occasional knock on a rugby field, I find it a very enlightening one, a very uplifting one, that if I keep the truth on my side or my version of the truth, then I tend to be consistent. Uh, I tend to be relatively stable as a leader and as a coach and as a teacher and as a speaker. Whereas if I continually try and change myself with camouflage skin to fit into the group around me, you can find yourself in knots remembering who you're with, what did you say last time, and what's the particular agenda they want there. And by the way, you can't kick kid kidders forever. Eventually you'll get caught out. So I hope that's a, an adequate enough answer for a brilliant question to throw out in the last 30 seconds of a pod. What was my what, – what's the holy grail? There's the meaning of the holy grail there. <laughs> I agree with all of that, but I'd go slightly different, which is I think elite teams are not made up of all-rounders. They're made up of people with great big super strengths and usually with significant weaknesses or work-ons. And so I would urge younger people to get better at their work-ons, you know, get your work-ons to five, six out of ten. You don't need to get them any better than that. But where I really would urge them to put their energy is find out the thing you could be truly world-class at? What is the thing that you could be better than anyone at? And put tons of energy at that. Keep making yourself better, better, better at your super strength because that's what elite teams are built by and that's what builds great careers. You don't have to be brilliant at everything. It's like a moment of enlightenment in your career when you spot, I don't have to be great at everything. It doesn't matter. I can't do X, but it doesn't matter because Will's brilliant at X. So I'm just going to focus on being even better at why. Try and work out what you can be world-class at and put your energy there. And if you're ever struggling for confidence and you want to finish with a little bit of humour, remember when you're looking at the leader, you think you'll never be able to copy or emulate. And just remember once he or she also once had their bottom wiped. On that note, I'm taking away. Remain world-class, stay consistent, and remember leaders had their bottom wiped once. On that bombshell. Will Greenwood, Ben Fennell, thank you for joining me. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guests this week, Will Greenwood and Ben Fennell, authors of World Class, How to Lead, Learn and Grow Like a Champion, available at all good bookshops. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us? 
or subscribe and let your friends or colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.